and I removed the gun from him. And by doing that, the gun went off and shot me in the hand. Can you just hold your hand up just so we can see your finger? There we go. I've been to Hong Kong and I've been to Japan. I speak a little bit of Japanese. Can you say something in Japanese? What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Wide Awake Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Rubin. And today I have a very special guest. His name is Gavin, and he is currently homeless and living in an area called Sea Points. We also had a guest on last week called Gary. He is also homeless, and they live in the same location in Sea Point. And today he's here to share his story. And from what I've heard, it's quite uh, a hectic story. So welcome to the studio. Thank you. So just to start off with, I mean, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Seapoint. Um, I went to Seapoint Boys Primary and Seapoint Boys High. And after Seapoint Boys High, I ended up going into my military in 1984. I did a term of five years. I spent the five years in Rwanda. I was a second lieutenant PTI instructor. During my national service, I um, landed up shooting two kids, an eight-year-old kid and a nine-year-old kid. Um, the Swabber terrorists came through this um, village and shot the village up. And I, Well, I came across these two kids, my platoon and myself came across this platoon. And I saw these two kids laying there with their stomachs gutted and out of humane acts, I withdrew my nine mil and I shot both the kids. And I got the Corporal Natson to bury the kids and once the kids were buried, I told my platoon to march out and leave the rest behind. Later that month, I was returning back to the base and the commandant of that base at that given time um, called me into his office and wanted to actually derank me on the parade ground and give me a court martial. Well, that I was not prepared to go through. And I landed up burning the South African flag, the old orange, white and blue. And by doing that, I was locked up for treason. And I was sentenced in the High Court in Pretoria to a term of 10 years, which four years was supposed to be have served in Fuertreke Wachtadibi, and the six years was supposed to have been served in the civilian prisons. Um, I did my four years in the DB detention and my six years I went into prison and I came out after five and a half years. I spent time in Robben Island and Pretoria Central and Maximum Paulsmore before I was released. I want to go back a little bit mm. to, you said you worked in the military mm. and you went to Rwanda. Mm. Can you tell us how you ended up going, going there? My dad. My dad was in the French Foreign Legions. He spent a term of five years and then he came back to South Africa. When they came to South Africa, he joined up a group of mercenaries called the Wild Geese with Mike Hall and Ian Yule. And my dad taught me how to fight and how to shoot and martial arts. Um, I'm quite high up in martial arts. I do Tai Chi. And my dad thought it was the best thing for me to do was go and to join the military. And I did that. And I had a great time doing the military. What my father taught me was one of the better things in life than whatever I've learned by anybody else. And at the time, why did they send you to Rwanda? We were in 32 battalion. We were um, sent anywhere to go and sort out hostile areas. 
It was the 32 Battalion and the Reckies that went into troubled areas first before any other soldiers came following. And you said that during your time there you came across these two kids mm. that were, were slaughtered. No, they were slaughtered. They were shot and their stomachs were gutted open and all their stomachs, intestines, were laying next to them. And what was, should have been red was black and it was covered with flies. And, um, and they were still alive. And they were still alive when I came across these two kids. And you ended up shooting, the two shooting kids. them because yeah. they were suffering? Definitely. Um, I would have no regrets if it was your kid and my kid that was lying there and do the same thing today. But you can't do that in the military, I'm assuming. No, you can't. My commandant, the, the commandant of the, the platoon of their camp said to me, I had no medical experience to take it upon myself to eliminate these two kids. But then I said to the commandant as well, I said to him, you know what, you went there, I was, and should have been your kid or my kid, I would have do the same thing again today. And something like that, I mean, just seeing something like that, um, I'm sure that really impacted. It affects your life completely. Yeah. You know, How um, has it affected your life? To value a life, to value a person's life more, and especially a children, child. Um, there's no reason for a child to go through that kind of pain or that kind of trauma. And unfortunately, a bullet doesn't have a name or a knife doesn't have a name. So a person who goes and randomly kills people, they concentrate mostly on the weak and not on the strong. And um, I just felt very sorry for these two kids and I thought this was the best thing I could do for them. There was no way that we would have been able to put their stomachs back into their bodies. It would never work. And just going back to your childhood, so who did you grow up with? Who raised you? I grew up with my father. My father brought me up from the age of five, six years old. Um, my mother... And my father got divorced when I was like very young, younger than five. And I never really got to know my mother. And I never really actually cared much about her still today. Even wherever she is today, I just wish her best of luck. But I really have no love there. But my father, he was a good man. And he was a hard man. But he was a very fair man. Um... He didn't like to hear about problems and he always wanted solutions to a problem. So my little problem that I have, I'm seeking a solution to it. So my problem is my problem is not anybody else's problem. Everybody has a bloody sad story to tell. But at the end of the day, you still go to bed alone and you still wake up alone with the same problem. I'm just looking for a solution to this problem at the moment. And did you finish kind of grade 12, up to grade 12? I did, school? yeah. And then you said you went to study at Rhodes University That's after correct. the military. After my military, yes. Can you tell me what you studied? I studied journalism. I did photojournalism. Um, I didn't get my degree. I spent three years. I failed to do the fourth year. Um, but I did work in the independent newspapers. I wrote for the Sunday Independent, Daily Dispatch, The Herald, and even Washington Post. I wrote for. And 
earlier on when we were talking, you mentioned that at one point you became very suicidal. Yes. Um, and that was about five years ago when um, I left my fiancé and my daughter behind um, and landed up living in Philippines. And I couldn't live without them. I went and turned to alcohol and became a little bit of a drunk. And I thought, okay, well, you know what? I can't shoot myself. I can't commit suicide. I will find somebody who will do it for me, but unknowing to the person that I'm seeking this. So I started doing journalism about gangster violence in Hanover Park between the infamous mongrels and the Americans, and the ghetto kids, and the lachlachs, and the... All the different gangs. All the different gangs that were fighting the mongrels. And so, basically, I was associated with the mongrels. People saw me as a mongrel, gangster. But that wasn't true. I was no gangster. I just wanted a good story. And then later during the year, I um, was confronted on a farm by one of the... American pit bulls, and I got a shot. A dog or a gang? A gang. I got shot in the hand. Can you just hold your hand up just so we can see your finger? There we go. I was shot in the hand, and the guy that shot me, um, well, he, well, he met the bad side of me, and I landed up breaking his neck. Because you are very well trained. I, I heard am. Gary, Gary told me that you are black belt. I am. I do martial arts. I do Tai Chi. I've done Tai Chi for the most of my life. Um, I've done karate. I've done judo. I've done boxing. And I've ended up doing Tai Chi in the end. Um, I've been to Hong Kong and I've been to Japan. I speak a little bit of Japanese. Um, Can you say something in Japanese? What does that mean? It has been a great pleasure being here and it is the most unexpected experience that I've ever encountered, <laughs> but so be it. So can you tell me a little bit about that story with, your, with the gunshot, right? So how did that happen? Can you tell me what led well, up to that happening? That, that was something that's quite funny. I went to the neighboring farmer, which I'm not going to mention his name. Um, he said to me, look... I must just go down to the old farmhouse that his father was staying in and just take a look what's happening there. Apparently, he's been hearing rumors that there's some gang activity happening there. So the one evening, I took a walk down and I had a rifle, a .22 rifle, and I went into the building um, with no walls broken down, door frames removed, window frames removed, real tacky, and no furniture, obviously, in the place but a lot of trash. And I heard this guy coming in saying to his two friends, yeah, so, so did you hear people saying, get mm. the guns or something like mm. that? And I thought straight away, oh shit, my fuck, this guy's got a gun. So looking around, there was no place really to hide. You couldn't hide behind the couch because there was no bloody couch. There was not even a bloody Coca-Cola crate to hide behind. So... I proceeded to hide behind the wall that would allow him to come through to the door, by the doorway. And as he came through, I stepped in and I removed the gun from him. 
And by doing that, the gun went off and shot me in the hand. And um, I dropped him to the ground, picked up a concrete slab and dropped it. If I wasn't shot in the hand, I would have got over him with a concrete slab. So I don't believe anybody has the right to shoot anybody. And a person who shoots somebody has no right to live because he intended to kill you. And he's going to come and kill you again. So that was my little incident there. And why is your finger still bent to this day? I never seek medical attention, first of all. Um, you had to go report it to the police. And I didn't report it to the police. And my knuckle is shot away completely. So I don't have a knuckle in the finger. So when I say to you, I'll meet you at 10 o'clock, <laughs> I've got to be there at 9 o'clock because I don't know if you've heard me by 10 o'clock. So I've got to be an hour there earlier. And what happened with the guy's body and everything? Because you said you never reported it. Well, I actually don't know what happened to his body. I know they were really bothered about it. Um, I know that the police uh, don't investigate gang murders. So I, I knew that this case was never going to be investigated. So as we were speaking earlier, you, you mentioned that you were suicidal, right? Mm. And you went on this kind of mission to basically get someone else to kill you. Yeah, basically, yeah. Are you still suicidal? No. How did you get over that? I had a choice the one day. My daughter dropped me off in, um, I think it's some um, retreat. And I decided either I go to Musenberg or I go to Seapoint. And... Um, I took a coin and I flipped the coin up. Heads, I go to Seapoint. Tails, I go to Musenberg. Flipped it up. Landing on heads, right, decision made. I'm going to Seapoint. And uh, I knew Gary prior to all this before by the building that we stayed in, the notorious building by Nan's building. I think I've met you before in uh, Nan's building. I think so too. How long were you staying there for? for about a year and a half, two years. And when was this? Just before they closed down. I've definitely met you there before. Because I've been there a lot of times. I, I used to go and document there a lot. And you look very familiar now that you just mentioned that you were there. Oh, yeah. Well, I would have given you probably a good advice to say, don't come here, don't mix with the people, don't keep your stuff close by. I think we've definitely met there no, before. <laughs> sure. Because I don't believe in people. Look at yourself, for example. You would be an easy prey to the criminal element. And yeah. I, on the other hand, wouldn't be able to tolerate that because you are an upstanding, you're an upstanding guy, you know, you're a nice guy. There's nothing wrong with you. Um, and I'm not going to see anybody harm you. That would be the last thing that anybody will even think of doing because at the end of the day, your safety is more important than anybody else's because that is riffraff and that's the trash of society that will just thrive on hurting or taking your items. I mean, how did you end up living on the streets? Like, what was what happened? Because you said you lived in Seapoint, which we know is a very upper-class area. Um, what happened from you living in that area to living in that area now, but on the streets? Well, it started off with my fiancé. Um, no, actually, not really my fiancé. My best friend, Graham, coming to our house the one evening and asked me, Gavin, do you know what this is? And I said to him, no, I've got no idea. It was like a little packet, a plastic bag, like a little teardrop in it. 
I've got no idea. And he told me it was cocaine. And I went, oh, really? And he <laughs> said to me, yeah, would you try some? So I said, of course I will try some. And then he said to me, um, and Tanya, what would she say? Don't worry about Tanya. She will definitely get involved with this. And we got introduced to the stuff. And, well, December came, December went. January came, January went. March, April, May. And we both got addicted to drugs. And it just cost money and more money and more money and more money. At one stage, we had an account with the drug dealer and the account ran up to like 45 grand a month. 45,000 grand a month. Mm. And which we have to pay every month. And we still went on and did the cocaine. And then became addicted to drugs at that stage. And um, so you basically just blew through all your money? Blew it up my nose, yeah. And did, at the time, because I think most addicts go, I know this is ruining my life. I can see I'm losing everything. Did you have that hindsight or were you so kind of in the moment where you just thought about your next fix? Well, I knew that this was going to come to an end, but I'm fortunate I don't have an addictive personality. Um, but my fiance, she had. And when I stopped, she claimed she stopped. And I found her in the main bedroom with her head in the cupboard. And I said, hey, what's happening? And she jumped up and closed the door of the cupboard and said, no, she's up to nothing. And I asked her to remove herself from the cupboard. Mm -mm. She stood there and said, there's nothing in the cupboard that belongs to me. So I moved out of the cupboard and there I found six grams of Coke. And a gram of Coke at that stage was 450 rand a gram. So you can imagine what kind of money you're spending. And that's just the evening, six grams. So how many grams did you do during the day? So that six grams landed up in the pool and that was the cause of our relationship, part of it, breaking up. And do you remember the first night you lived on the streets? Um, yes, I did. What was that like? Well, it wasn't that bad because I stayed at um, in Seapoint again at the um, rugby club and it was like peaceful. I know they had any problems with anybody. I've never really had any problems with anybody on the streets while I've been there. I'm like, like I've said before, I can handle myself quite well. And yes, I can. And um, my advice to you is rather stay away from me rather and walk around me. Don't approach me if you come with bad attitude because I will drop you. And people look at me and they get the wrong impression of me. They think I'm a walkover. You can't judge anybody and you can't assume that you would be able to beat somebody up. Never think that you can do that. And um, I'm not going to be very lenient on you if you do try and touch me. I'm going to hurt you. So do you think... Um when you, when, we, when you first moved on the streets, were people quite violent towards you? They saw you as an easy target. They thought I was an easy target, yeah. But eventually word spread, you know. Don't mess with, don't mess yeah, with just you. Leave that, just leave that <laughs> white here alone. Yeah, leave that white here alone. 
And um, what are some of the scariest situations you've you've had living on the streets? I haven't really had many scary incidences. I've always like, I walk alone. I don't have any friends. I don't associate myself with the people on the street for number one. The only person I really do speak to is Gary. And as you can see, Gary's not a bad guy. Mm. And he's quite a humble guy. And he's a decent guy. And um, basically I just speak to Gary. And everybody else just fears away from him. And Gary is a softie. And he gets robbed many and many a times. And when that happens, he would shout for me. And I'd get up and go and assist him and help him. Um, I don't find it funny or in any way when people rob people or hurt people that are weaker than themselves. So, yeah, basically I try and help people who actually need help. If you're weak and I see this is happening to you, well, I'm coming to help you. So you try to protect those around you? Mm, the weak, the weak people. If you could describe being homeless in three words, what would those three words be? Cold, sad, and lonely. And what emotions do you feel when, when you think of your time living on the streets? I don't think about that. I try and avoid it. I don't think about that. I think of better things. I think um, of how fortunate I am to be able to wake up tomorrow morning and not worry about the problem that I've got and just go down to the beach and clean the beach. By me cleaning the beach is a form of me cleaning myself. And it's just, yeah, it's like the ocean. You know when you go for a swim in the ocean, how do you feel when you walk out the water? It's the best Refreshed, ever. don't you? Well, I clean the beach every day. I pick up all the paper and I pick up all the shit and that's lying around. And then once I've done that for the day, I would ask one of the, um, the owners of the sheds if I may borrow their um, surf ski. And they would say, go ahead, take my surf ski and I'll take the surf ski and I'll go for a paddle. So you spend a lot of time in the ocean? I spend a lot of time in the ocean. And last year I dived amongst 150 um, humpback whales that were in a feeding frenzy. Because you know, we know that there's massive migrations sure. of dolphins and whales and the, massive pots. The ocean is the most beautiful and most refreshing and the most spiritual building building thing that there is. You can't mm -hmm. you can't you can't be miserable like now with me coming here this morning. You found me soaking, drenching basically with water. Um I've just came out of the water that time. Do you, are you currently still using substances? Are you still um, using drugs? I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. I'd say to you definitely yes. And do you see a way of you getting yourself clean? Yes, I do. Through the ocean. I'm using less and less and less of this as every day goes by. Some days go by, some weeks go by um, before I actually go and use the substance again. But alcohol is the problem that I have. I drink quite a bit. And um, I do do drugs. I'm not going to say I don't because I'd be bullshitting myself. And I didn't come here to bullshit you neither or the public. Um, yeah. I do find that there is a solution to the problem.
and the solution starts within. And do you ever see yourself getting off the streets I permanently? Do. Yes, I do. I'm, I need to just focus myself on getting like maybe three kayaks and a combi, a microbus or something like that, where I can start my own tour guides and have my own accommodation in a combi if necessary. And doesn't necessarily mean that I have to stay in Cape Town. I can go from coast to coast to coast to coast all the way up. And, and just off. rent them out mm. and make a living through yeah, that. Yeah, that's it. One, two doubles I need and one single one. Singles for me and the two doubles are for the clients. Mm. Amazing. Yeah, I think it's great fun out there in the ocean. Well, thank you so much for coming no, and sharing you. your story. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. And I just say to everybody, thank you for everything and all the donations that you guys have given me. Um, it is going for a good cause. I don't just think of myself. I think of other people as well. I can see that. Thank you. Well, thank you everyone for watching. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Wide Awake Podcast and I'll see you all very soon. Cheers.